Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. If you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. And we come today to one of the most famous episodes in all of the Bible. We're looking at the story of David and Goliath. And it's interesting when this story starts, David, the first time he sees Goliath goes, and one of his responses there is, let no man's heart fail because of him. Do you know what he means when he says, let no man's heart fail? So when your heart fails, it means that you don't have courage. It means that there's a fear that comes because courage is absent. And so courage dissipates and and fear begins to well up. And so he's talking about just the fears that we face. And And David says, it's realistic. The normal natural response when you're faced with a battle against an enormous man is that you might have fear. But David says, let no man's heart fear. And what are the things that cause our hearts to fear, cause our hearts to fail? I think sometimes it's, you know, for for those soldiers, it was that they were gonna lose their life. I think for us, oftentimes it's that we might lose our friends. We fear that we might lose our wealth. We fear that we might lose our health, that we might lose our reputation, that we, maybe we do fear that we're going to lose our lives, that eventually we're going to give it over as well. And there's all kinds of things that make our hearts fear. You know, one of the dangers I think of suburban life is that we've learned how to put a tough face on. And so we, we, we know how to kind of play the game and put, the, put a tough face on, a courageous face on everything and look tough on the outside while on, on the inside, we oftentimes do have insecurities and fears and stresses and anxieties that are eating us up. But we walk into in and out of work and we smile and we put on the bold face and we walk in and out of church and we smile and we say, how are you? And we we go about our lives ignoring the things that are going on inside or pretending that they're they're not there. But really, we do have worries, don't we? We worry that our kids aren't going to turn out right. We worry that our marriage isn't going to be satisfying. We, We worry that maybe we won't ever have kids or maybe that we won't ever find a spouse. We worry that we're not gonna be able to pay the bills or that we're gonna lose our job. We worry about all kinds of things. We worry that someday that thing that seems to beat us up is gonna get the better of us and we're not gonna be able to fight back in the end. Um, So we have all these worries. Uh, You know, one of the great thinkers of the last century is Mike Tyson, the boxer. A wonderful life philosopher had this to say. Uh, Everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom to what Mike Tyson says, right? It's true in the boxing ring. You, you can have a plan for how you're gonna step in the ring, but as soon as you get punched in the face, your plan may go out the window. Life works a lot the same way. Like everyone starts out life and they've got a great plan and, and they've got this idea of whatever, where everything's gonna go. And, and then life happens, adversity comes, difficulty comes, challenges come. And when that happens, I mean, we begin to shrink back and it makes a second guess. And so today, what we're going to look at is this idea of, of really what, are, how, what do we do to face our fears? And there's a great kind of episode that happens when David goes down and he goes down to this creek bed and he finds five smooth stones, it says, that he's going to take and he puts those in and those are going to be the stones he uses for a sling. And man, preachers love good outlines. And so when you got five smooth stones, it means you got to have five points to your outline. So I'm just going to give you five points, one for each of David's stones today. And we're going to talk about five smooth stones that help you face your fears. Um, 
And here's what we're going to see, that if you want to face fears in life, you've got to move from self-confidence to God-confidence. That if you're going to face your fears in life, you've got to move beyond self-confidence to God-confidence. Uh, you probably know this basic story because it's been abused and misused for years, right? Uh, the story of David and Goliath that shows up in every political campaign, every sporting event, every sports one time had David against Goliath as the intro promo for the Sunday football game. Uh, we see these things all the time. And it really just assumes that Goliath's the guy who's going to win and everyone loves to cheer on an underdog, right? So David's the underdog that we all begin to cheer for. But there's a lot more going on in this story than just an underdog story as we're gonna see. Now, in fact, if you remember in 1 Samuel up to this point, uh, kind of re- re- reviewing where we've been uh, kind of in the story up to now, in, in 1 Samuel 16, we saw one of the key verses in this, 1 Samuel 16, seven. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or the height of his stature. He's not talking about Goliath here. He's talking about them searching for a king and what, what the king of Israel was gonna look like. And, and, he, and Samuel's pushing back, really the Lord is pushing back against the idea that this king needs to be this imposing figure, but they wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God had given them Saul, this tall, imposing, physical man as their king. But God warns them. He says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees, as man sees. The Lord look, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees differently than we do. Men look at the external accolades and impressiveness of a person, but God looks on the heart. And so what we're gonna see in 1 Samuel 17 is that really this entire chapter basically works as an illustration of that one verse. We're gonna see whether or not Israel has really learned their lesson. Have they taken what God said in in 1 Samuel 16, 7 to heart, or have they continued to move through their own way? Um, Anyone got a guess? Have they learned a lot? Probably not, right? Uh, they're, they're a lot like us. Sometimes they need to hear something more than once. So in the early parts of 1 Samuel 17, we see David's brought, to his, brought his older brothers food supplies. His three oldest brothers are soldiers in the war. David was left home. He's still, it was sent back out as a shepherd. I uh, remember he had gone out and he'd been with Saul. He'd probably been, Saul went off to war. David was sent back home. So he went back home. He was a shepherd again, but his dad went and got him and said, hey, let someone else keep the sheep. I need you to take some food because the way it worked in that day was that your family had to send food forward to provide for your your sons who were soldiers on the front of the battle. And so David's bringing food up to his brothers to help take care of them. And when he does, uh, he finds that they're positioned in this, uh, this kind of battle entrenchment. And really the way it is, they're in kind of a big ravine. And there's, if you imagine big areas that go up like this, and then you get down and there's a, about a one mile uh, air, wide area that comes across this. And at the, big, at the middle of that kind of, that, that kind of valley, there's, there's a ravine that runs through and a creek where all the winter rains, when they melt off, run through this creek. And so there's a creek here in this ravine in the middle. On either side, there's about a half mile kind of Thin, uh, kind of a slope that goes up. And on either side of that half mile slope, you have the Philistine army on one side, the Israelite army on the other side. So they're positioned there. And David comes to this battlefront. And, and as he sees this, man, for a teenage boy, knowing that everyone's gone off to war and his heart just starts beating a little faster. He starts getting a little excited and think, man, I get to finally go see this thing of the war. And so what happens though, is he gets there, is he hears this uproar of people that begin to, this kind of stirring of something that happens. David gets so excited, it says he just drops the bags and he runs to see what happens. And Goliath, this big Philistine soldier comes out and he begins to rebuke and call the people out, uh, the Israelites out into 
this battle. And so David kind of, I mean, Goliath comes out and when he does, he issues this charge. And what he says is, hey, there's no reason for both armies to have to lose so many, have so many casualties. Why don't we just settle this kind of mano y mano, man on man, one on one, I'll step out here and, and it can just be me against your best guy. So our best guy and Goliath says, and that's me, I'm the champion against your best guy. You pick whoever you want, send them out to fight us. And we'll just kind of have that, that be the, the thing that settles this entire battlefront. Now that may seem reasonable in some regards until you realize that Goliath is huge. And you guys know the story, but uh, Goliath is, if you kind of read what it says, is supposedly nine feet, six inches tall. That's a big dude. Guinness Book World Records says that in, the, uh, in modern day history, recorded history of people who are even measuring these things and recording them, the tallest guy we know of was eight foot 11. It was 1940 Illinois man. Um, and so people can grow pretty big. Uh, the tallest we know right now, as I looked up, was about eight foot five inches is the tallest that I could find a record of. Over nine feet would be pretty amazing. Now this Goliath is not only tall, but he also is wearing 126 pounds of armor. He's got a bronze helmet and bronze chainsmail to cover his torso and bronze armor on his legs. And so, man, think about the opposing figure of this guy shining with this iron kind of uh, armor that protects him. He's over nine feet tall and he's there and he's calling out the Israelites and calling them to come and fight. And Goliath is called champion for a reason. You don't become a champion by not fighting, right? Like you, you call, you, you've been called a champion because you've been the gladiator that won. Like he's the guy who continued to win and was always victorious in all of his battles. And so no one in Israel wants to fight this guy. In fact, one guy said that when they looked at him, they were impressed and depressed that this was the guy they had to fight. Think about this though, for 40 days in a row, morning and evening, Goliath has shown up and just gone out there and said, you know, are you not entertained? Like, uh, Goliath's gone out and he's stepped out like a gladiator in the battle, calling them out saying, are you, who's gonna come and fight me? And for 40 days in a row, the Israelites just hid. Man, isn't that like our fears? Don't they show up day after day, morning and evening, never going away? That when we're afraid, they're ever present. And that enemy is always calling us out and challenging us. But on day 41, David gets there and everything changes. David says, who dares call out the armies of the living God? And things begin to change. David gets there and he says, hey, what's gonna happen to the guy that wins? Like the guy that beats him, what's he get? Like surely the king's offered some kind of good thing out of this, right? And so the soldiers tell him, they said, yeah, Saul said that if anyone beats him, he'll give him great riches, he'll give him his daughter's hand in marriage, and then he'll give, no, give him no taxes for life. Like you'd think some crazy dude would be like, man, I'll take a shot, right? Like some guy that's desperate that had a lot of gambling debts or something would run out there and be like, man, riches, king's daughter, no taxes for life, sure, I'll give it a shot. But for 40 days, no one has been willing to do that. And uh, one guy, you know, it's, if you read a little bit ahead, what we're gonna see is Saul's daughter may not have been that much of a catch. So that may have been more of a hindrance than help. Uh, that becomes a problem a little bit later. So it may not have been their fear of Goliath as much as his daughter, but... I, no, I think they're really just scared of, Deli of Goliath. But there's a fear that, that they're kind of given into and they're not gonna go out and make this fight. But you think after 40 days, someone would have to fight, right? Like how long are they gonna go like this? I, you gotta think Saul's talking to his advisors and going, man, is it like rock, paper, scissors time? Like we just call three guys up and they're like, you know, like best three out of five and whoever loses has to go fight this guy or whatever. Because you know this, it can't go on this long. But David all of a sudden shows up and everything changes. So 
Let's look at what David had that these guys didn't that allowed him to face their fears. The first thing you see in this passage is David had humility. Military age in that time was the age of 20. David was probably, what that means is probably, he was a teenager. He looked a lot like one of you guys. And I know you guys, I know you think you're buff and I know you think you're tough, but maybe you're not, yeah, you know, don't you? Uh, But compared to Goliath, these guys would have been intimidated. He was probably a 16 or 18 year old young man at this time. And as you think about kind of where, uh, what it would have been like to face him, David couldn't have been that physically impressive. In fact, what we see about David's life is he was, he was constantly overlooked as a guy who was, he was tangibly not impressive. Remember his lineup with his brothers when they were looking for a king, they lined up all, they were gonna, there were eight brothers and they lined up seven of them. They didn't even bring David to the lineup because they thought, well, surely he can't be the dude. And so he was not someone they would have looked at and thought he's the guy. David gone from being a shepherd boy to being a servant boy to being basically a fast food delivery boy to bring in food to his brothers. And then he becomes a fanboy. He, he's so kind of giddy when he gets to the battle that it says he dropped the bags and just ran up going, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening? This is a young guy. And when he first arrives, um, he, he's, he's kind of excited about what he's seeing. But what he encounters is a bunch of people that are afraid of what they've experienced. And luckily or unluckily, he runs into his big brother. You gotta think he's thinking, man, I'm looking for my brothers. He finds them, he's gonna get something good. Uh, one of the stories my brother loves to tell about me was the first varsity football game. He got to dress up, he got to dress out in. Uh, we were there and it was actually sleeting and it was super cold and it was super wet. And so they sent all the guys that were, the older guys that were playing out to, to warm up. And they left some of the younger guys in to stay dry. And um, we come back in from warm ups. We're about to go in for this big football game. And I remember running over to my brother and he, as he tells the story, he said, man, I was there and I just thought I was nervous. I was feeling a little uncomfortable. I see you coming in. I think, oh good, Jeff's gonna be here to encourage me. And I walked up and I said, give me all your warm clothes. And that was all I had. And so I took all his warm clothes, put them on me. Um, I'm pretty sure mom brought him some other stuff to wear, but big brothers, right? Well, the first thing David runs into is his big brother. Look in verse 28. What we see is Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he says, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few little sheep in the wilderness? And don't you love just the condescension there? He says, I know your presumption of the evil of your heart. You have not come, you've just come down to see the battle. What was it God said about David's heart? He was a man after his own heart. What's Eliab say about David's heart? I know the evil of your heart. Eliab's not seeing things right. David said, um, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Don't you love that, parents? Like, some things don't change, right? Like, sibling relationships still look the same there. I love how real the Bible is. And David turned away and turned toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered again as before. And you gotta love big brothers, and we should not be surprised though when we're misunderstood and attacked by those who don't understand our passion, our zeal for the Lord. But sometimes when we're excited about the Lord, others are gonna misread that. And we see that with David here. Uh, but David doesn't get defensive or argumentative. It says he doesn't back down either. He stays focused on God. He stays focused on the mission that he, that he sees in front of him. And so eventually word gets to the king and Saul calls David in and brings, Saul, brings David in and says, okay, there's a guy that's willing to fight. Man, let me see him. Bring him in. And what is Saul's first response when David walks in as the guy that says, man, I'll, I'll take the guy. I'll take this giant out. Verse 33, it says, Saul's first words are, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for your bit of youth. And he's a man that was, he's been a man of war since his youth. 
Meaning when you were in your diapers, this guy was out killing people. There's no way you're ready to go fight him. And so Saul immediately kind of has this condescending thing that's very similar to what his brother had said. But nowhere in this passage, it's interesting that as David looked at, somebody, he walks in the room and everyone goes, dude, that guy's gonna do okay. Every step of the way, there's these doubts, there's these fears, there's these concerns about what's gonna happen. But what we see is it's actually David's weakness that makes him strong. David isn't physically imposing, but he's full of faith. And so his heart is full. On the other hand, Goliath is physically imposing, right? Goliath has really high self-confidence, doesn't he? Like Goliath is not shaking in his boots. He's feeling, his self-esteem's probably okay. When you think about Goliath, and one guy called this his counterfeit courage. He's physically imposing. You can't imagine him just strutting around camp as the champion every day when he comes in the morning, comes back and goes, they still won't fight me. You know, he's physically confident. He's cocky. He's uh, trying to be intimidating. He's got the most high-tech weapons of that day. He's, he's covered in this armor to protect him. He's full of this kind of braggadocia and bravado. And so you see this kind of imposing nature of Goliath. And we live in a culture that values that kind of thing too, don't we? Just like they did. A culture that values self-worth and self-esteem and self-confidence. And those things aren't necessarily all bad. But here's the problem with those. If that's what you're relying on, eventually we all meet someone that's bigger than we are. See, Saul was a head taller than everyone in Israel, but Goliath was a head taller than him still. And so eventually you find something that will, that will cause you to meet your match. And sure, Goliath is a horrifying enemy. You're scared to face him, but you drop a rock on his forehead at 100 miles an hour and it's still gonna break his skull. And all the nine feet gets you then is you just got further to fall. And so Saul himself is not invincible. And so what we see here is that David puts his confidence in God, but he stays humble and still... Uh, still stays the course. So the first thing is humility. The second thing you see in David is memory. And we see that David also has a good memory. Verse 34, David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear or a lamb that took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See, David's got a proven track record. He's got a, a history of trusting the Lord. This isn't his first time of having to depend upon God. His, he's practiced over and over what it's like to trust God. He, he learned in small things and he's saying now, God will be faithful to me in big things. And so in the midst of that practicing his trust, he says that um, that gives him confidence in the midst of this moment. Friends, can I just tell you nothing in your life is ever wasted? That all the things that just seem like you're doing the menial tasks of life, they seem like they're not gonna amount to much, that God takes all of those for those who are him and causes them to work together for good. God uses those things to bring about good things. So don't ever underestimate how God's building you and building your faith. Jesus said, one who's faithful in very little will be faithful in much. Do the little things right. Trust the Lord in the little things. And then when the big things come, you'll have something to draw on that'll help you trust him in the big things as you move forward. That's what Jesus was trying to explain to us. The opposite is also true. If you ignore God in the little moments, you're not gonna know how to trust him when you get to the big moments. And you're gonna be afraid. So start small. Trust God with the little things in your life. 
and then move forward from there. David says, I remember trusting God in the hard times I've had in my past. And so I'm looking forward to trusting him in the moments as we move, as we move forward. Uh, did you catch the phrase that David used when he was talking about God? He says that Goliath challenged the armies of what? Of who? Of the living God. That's not just a phrase. That's not just like a token, something he's throwing out. This isn't like a technical side note. That, but, but my question for you is, in your mind and in your heart, is, is God alive or is he just an idea? Is he personal or is he just kind of this vague thing that's out there? See, Christianity is not about you just putting on a jersey that has God across the front. Christianity is about a relationship with the living God of the universe, the God who is very much real and active and caring and interested and invested in you and knows what's going on all around you. It's a relationship with that guy. That's what the Christian faith is about. It's a relationship with the living God who's at work in 10,000 ways we don't even recognize all day long. He's doing all kinds of things sustaining this universe, but also at work in your life. But you know, sometimes we get to catch a glimpse of how God works. Can you look back at times in your past where you just think, man, I remember when I was going through this thing and God showed up. I remembered when I didn't know I was going to pay this bill and God showed up. I remember when I was facing this fear and, and God showed up. I remember when I had this doubt and, and I began to wrestle and began to question everything and God showed up. What, it, what we see with David is he marked those milestones and he remembered that they were there. Israel did the same thing. In fact, Israel, it says, they, they would pile up stones. That when they would have these moments where it was undeniable that God had showed up, they would take stones and just pile them up to make a marker of this is the God, the living God who showed up for us in our time of need. And they would do that so that they could look back in the future and say, man, if God showed up then, I'm gonna trust it'll show up now. And so they were, it gave them confidence and understand what the, what, that they could trust the Lord as well. Friends, you need, to, you need to mark the moments where God has showed up for you. You need to pile up stones of remembrance as well. Journal them, write them down, remember them. Adele Davies said of David, looking back in faith allows him to look forward in faith. And we need to be able to do both. So we need a memory if we're going to face our fears. It's interesting, um, the, the next thing that we're gonna see is you also not just need memories of how God's personally works, but you also need theology. You need to have a good theology. In this whole passage, it's fascinating. When you look at the 50 plus verses in 1 Samuel 17, you know, David's the only one that really refers to God in a, in a way of faith. David's the only one that speaks up to him. In fact, in verse 26, we see the very first word recorded in scripture from David, the very first thing that David speaks, and he's talking about the Lord. He's making, he's inserting and injecting a theological note into this conversation. And in that place, he's actually talking with his brothers. And as, he, as he's talking with his brothers and the soldiers, he's saying, he starts talking about God. And, he says, and basically what he says is, I mean, if God is so identified with his people, Israel, and with their army, then when this, this Philistine dude throws down defiance towards us, do you think God doesn't take that personally? And so Dave, David begins to make this kind of theological conversation because he knows that God chose Israel out of all nations. That God calls Israel and says, you're like the apple of my eye. God refers to Israel and says, you're like my bride that I've brought to myself, that I will defend and I will protect, that I will bring home. And so he knows that the Lord loves Israel. He says, do you think if this guy is not calling out curses upon Israel, that God isn't taking personal offense that his name has been insulted, that his people have been attacked. And so David builds an argument. 
You get to, you go a little further and David gets in a conversation with King Saul and he intersects another theological point. In his making his case to get to fight Goliath with King Saul, he says, Goliath defied the armies of the living God. And so he kind of takes this defiant attitude toward him. And he says, look, the Lord will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. He refers to him sometimes in another place as this uncircumcised Philistine, meaning and this is a pagan guy who's rejected our God and run away from our God and, and, and is against our God. And so he, again, is making a theological case. It's interesting, David also makes a theological case to Goliath when he's in the middle of battle, right? When he goes to battle and he's fighting against Goliath, he says, I have come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. See, David's jealous for God. He's jealous for God's name. He's fighting for God's honor. He's passionate about seeking God's glory. What we see is this is kind of a theocentric approach to life, that he's taking this God-centered approach to life, not a me-centered approach to life. That God is, is really at the forefront of his thinking. And the point of the David and Goliath story, and I think this is really important for us because this story gets misused an awful lot. The point of the story is that the battle is the Lord's. That David's coming saying, the Lord can work even through my weakness, not because I have muster up all this faith internally, but because I have faith, you, the Lord, can work through my weakness to bring about your good. And so this uh, really is, I think, instructive for us as we think about how does you want to apply David and Goliath's story to you? See, David and Goliath's story, it's not God will help me conquer any fear and enemy I face. See, don't, don't take this text and use it to say, I'm going to go jump out of an a perfectly good airplane, um, you know, because I'm going to have faith and God can help me beat my fear. Or, or I'm going to go climb a, climb a mountain without a rope, or I'm going to try public speaking. Or It's really not just saying like anything you fear, God's going to show up and you're going to become victorious. That really isn't the point of David and Goliath. He's saying in the Lord's battles, when I'm fighting for the Lord's name, God himself is going to show up to deliver his people. And so David is confident and says, the Lord will deliver me. I love Proverbs 28.1 says, the righteous are bold as a lion. And David's bold here as he steps out in faith. One guy said this about this whole passage, and it's a little bit long, but, but lean in here because I think this is really helpful for us. He says, while Saul languished in despair, looking at the situation only through its appearances, so he's looking on the outside again, David gazed on the giant with the eye of faith in the lens of his own experience as it validated the testimony of the scriptures. David's experience taught him to believe the old stories of God's mighty deliverance, stories that Saul had forgotten or disregarded. David saw things theologically from God's perspective, and his faith made him ready to face the giant in the battle. A similar perspective in, in our situations and a confidence in the Lord based on his proven faithfulness in our own lives will prepare us to stand firm in the battle against the spiritual enemies of tomorrow. Friends, what you believe matters. Your theology shapes your life. And so David comes, and he comes with humility. He also comes with a memory of how God's worked personally in his life. But he also comes with a theology that says, man, God's shown up for his people for years, and he's promised to do so again. And so that gives David confidence to face his fears. Let's look at the fourth stone that helps us face our fear, and that's authenticity. Authenticity. Um, look at verse 37. We're going to read 37 down through 40. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. 
And David strapped on his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff from his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, I love this whole story. It's uh, fascinating kind of in this little episode of what happens. It's an interesting scene because Saul makes what sounds like a spiritual sounding statement at the beginning, right? He says, go, the Lord be with you. Now, really, that's just a, a normal greeting of the day. But he's saying, the Lord be with you. He's throwing out this kind of trite, spiritual sounding statement. What we see is Saul had the language of faith, but he lacked the real action of faith. That he didn't really trust that the Lord would go with him, which is why he's saying, David, may, maybe I'll go with you. And he's sending him on. See, one of the dangers, can I tell you one of the dangers of living in a predominantly Christian culture in a highly churched city? One of the dangers is that we can learn God talk without learning to really talk to God. We can learn to, to discuss God without really learning to trust God. We can learn that Jesus is the answer to the question, but we don't know how to take our questions to Jesus to find answers from him. And if you don't have a personal vital relationship, if it's just language that you've thrown out and like, well, I went to Sunday school, they told me this, these are the answers, but you don't have a real relationship of faith with Jesus, then it's going to fall empty whenever you get to challenges and adversity of life. And I think that's what you see here with Saul. It's interesting because Saul's offering well wishes to David, right? And I think Saul's genuinely trying to help when he offers him his armor. He's like, man, I don't have a lot to offer, so why don't we just, why don't we put my armor on you? Yeah, let's load you up. But you notice that Saul has been dependent upon, depending upon self. And so the only thing he has to offer is a, is a self-made solution or a man-made solution. But he doesn't really trust the Lord. He doesn't really see a, a spiritual solution. He just tries a man-made solution. And so he goes and puts his armor on David. How silly do you think David looked? Remember, Saul's a full head taller than everyone in Israel, and, and David's a young dude. Um, you got to imagine that as he's got this armor and he's trying to walk, it says he, he tried in vain to go. Like, you got to picture this guy, like, not even be able to bend his arm. It's like, remember the guy in Christmas story, the little kid that's like stuffed like this and he can't even walk? David probably looked kind of like that as he's going out. It says he tried in vain to go. And I think David's polite and he's like, you know, Saul, I don't think I can do it. I haven't tried this in battle before. I don't think I should do this. And I think he just knew like, man, this is vanity. There's no way for this to really help me in terms of the battle. I need to trust the Lord. And it's easy for us to put on armor to try to look more impressive than we really are, isn't it? What armors do we put on? What things do we kind of cover ourselves, our weakness up in so that we look stronger than we really are? I think sometimes it's material success. It's Online confidence. Man, the bravest, boldest people are anonymous people typing on a keyboard in our world, right? Like they're really confident. Um, I, th I think sometimes it's just an armor. It's a mask. It's not real. We put on image and good looks. We put on uh, popularity and approval. We put on intelligent, sound reasoning. We, we put these things on as armor to try to mask our weakness. But David it says he makes the decision and puts the armor off. Have you ever made a decision to put off everything except for the Lord? and just to trust that, that I'm gonna to come to the Lord in my own skin and just trust that he's gonna show up and do good for me. Man, I love what G.K. Chesterton says. He says, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? Your life would be, even, would be enlarged if you didn't see yourself as the middle of it all. If you saw yourself as just a part of it, but you were comfortable as who you are, then you can move forward. Friends, just be the real you, really surrendered to the real God. 
That's all we see. That's all we see in the life of David is he just says, you know what? I need to go be me. I'm going to take my old shepherd's pouch. I'm going to take my old sling. I'm going to grab five smooth stones and I'm going to go out the way I've always gone out and just trust the Lord. And the real you trusting the real God. That's where we want to be. So as you think about um, the, the last, last of the stones is courage. We've got humility, memory, theology, authenticity, and we get to courage. Verse 41. It says, And the Philistine moved, toward, moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, <clears throat> ready and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not by sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into, your, into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly towards the battle line and he met the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the, sunk, the stone sunk into the, his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Battle scene, right? Tough stuff. Um, it's a good, make a good movie, right? What happens with Goliath? You notice Goliath first when he gets on the scene, he just looks on the external. He looks at the outward appearance, just like Saul had done, just like Eliab had done. Uh, he's looking on the outside. He calls David a runt. He looks at David's weapons and he's like, man, am I just a mutt that you're coming to me with sticks? And so he mocks his weapons. And then he mocks his gods and he calls out curses on him in verse 43. But it's interesting, David matches his smack talk, doesn't he? Like David doesn't back down. David's like, oh, you want to give me that? Let me give you some back. And so kind of going trash talk. And so he's going to immediately throw it back. But David's is not built upon his own self-confidence. It's really built on his confidence in the Lord. That's where his focus stays. It's interesting in this passage, six times there's one word that's repeated and over and over, it's the word that is translated in, in, in English. It says that he was, or that, that Saul defied or mocked or taunted uh, the Israelites and their God. And so throughout this whole passage, you've seen this thing repeated over and over that Goliath keeps taunting, mocking, defying the gods of Israel. And that really tells us what, or it really gives us insight into one of the key focuses um, of this passage. David brings it up with Goliath and he says, look, you've defined not just me, you've defied my God. And so he begins to fight back. And that's his driving concern throughout the entire passage. His concern is really for the name of God. When he, when he says, I come in the name of the Lord, what he's saying is he's looking at the Lord's being and the Lord's character and saying, man, this is like his banner. The banner that I carry is that I'm coming in the name of the Lord to fight for him. To fight in the name of the Lord is to walk under his blessing, but also to invoke his promises and to trust him. And so he says, I come in the name of the Lord. He's like, man, I'm coming depending completely on the, the living God that I represent. 
the nation's hiding in fear, but David steps forward. And it's, one guy pointed out David's confidence, which I thought was kind of funny. He said, David promises Goliath, he says, hey, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna chop your head off with a sword. Who had the only sword on the battlefield? Goliath. But David's at the time saying, I'm gonna take your own sword and I'm gonna cut your head off with it, and he does. See, what matters is not that you have the best weapons. What matters here is that you have the real God. And when the nation's standing in fear, David steps forward and goes into battle. Friends, it's important that we're willing, to, we're willing to fight for the honor of the Lord, that we get to do the same thing. Uh, it's interesting to me that when you think about this, the reality is that there's no Goliath in any time or any place that the living God can't slay. When you think about just this, uh, kind of the, the amazing scene you have here of this young boy running from across this kind of divide of this ravine coming up to this giant of a man ready for battle, is that if God bids a Goliath to fall, no height or strength or armor or self-confidence will halt God's wish. Here you have, a, you have a boy who's not yet old enough to register for the draft, at some distance away, hurls a single three-inch wide stone over 100 miles an hour across a ravine through the wind and penetrates through a soldier who's fought battle after battle with a bronze helmet and he finds the one spot where that three-inch stone can go sneak through the armor. And it says that it is fully embedded in his brain because he defied the living God. Now, do you believe in sovereignty? Do you believe in God's sovereignty? Um, David does. Goliath does. Um, because what are, what are the odds that this one soldier is just so skilled that he was able to pull this off? Or that this one young man who is full of faith whom the Spirit of God had been upon, would be allowed to execute this one who had called out God's people. Notice why David says he fights, because it's important we fight for the right reasons. Verse 46 and 47, David fights so that all the earth may know and all this assembly may know that, that our Lord saves. See, David knew the times. He knew that everyone was so fixated on the external appearance and the way people looked and the way that they, that they felt about themselves that that, uh, that that was what mattered to everyone. That's what drove everyone. You look at Israel, they wanted to have a king just like all the other nations. We want to be impressive like all the other nations. And David wanted people to know that it's the Lord that saves, not impressive people that save. And so David calls them to that and says that I want, I want all the earth to know, but I also want this assembly, meaning my people to know that the Lord really saves. And so he moves forward in battle. And you've probably heard this preach before and it usually goes something like this. David, the underdog, overcame the giant because he really believes that he can win. It's not really the story that you see here in the Bible, is it? It's really not that he believes he can win. It's that he believes the Lord can win. And there's a kernel of truth that he did have faith, but his faith was not in him in himself. His faith was in a God who rescues Friends, in this story, we're more like the Israelites who are afraid and facing an enemy we can't beat. That's, that's really where we fit in this story. Israel needed a savior to come rescue them against an enemy they couldn't beat. And God provided a man after his own heart from the outside of their ranks to step into the gap and deliver them. When you think about this, David is a type of Jesus. He, he was their representative. He was their champion. He took his position in the battle on their behalf. He substituted himself fighting the battle they couldn't win so that they could become victorious. David risked his life, but Jesus gave his life for us. 
David stepped into the battle. Jesus also stepped into the battle. David acted so that all the world would know that the Lord saves. Jesus acted so that all the world would know that the Lord saves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe would not perish but have eternal life. Friends, if that's true, would we not celebrate like Israel did that day? Man, imagine the moment when these guys who've been in fear for 40 days see that big giant go thunk and they hear that thud on the ground and they know that David just dropped that dude and they see David pull his sword off of him and grab that giant thing and start chopping at this guy's head and they see the Philistines start running away and the Israelites are what? They're emboldened, aren't they? They're emboldened to, to move out in faith and to go and do And so they begin to charge. And I think the same ought to be true of us. We end with this, as we think about the way we ought to be emboldened by what Jesus has done for us. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. See, Jesus is our champion our champion against Satan, our champion against sin, our champion against death. David fought a physical enemy. Jesus has fought an eternal enemy. And he's been victorious for us. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, thanks be to God. He's given us the victory through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the life which we have in Christ. Thank you for our champion. Thank you for our victor. Thank you for our representative head who stepped into the gap to fight the battle which we could not win, to give us victory which we could not earn. Thank you for the joy that we have in him. Father, if there's any here that don't know him, might you just let them know today that self is not enough. Self-confidence is not enough. That they need faith. They need to be confident in, in a God who sends a champion to save. Father, may it be so even today that they would believe and to trust him. Let me pray in Christ's name. Amen.